I want us to look today at one of the most important and incredible truths that you will hear anywhere. That is the wonder of the new birth. It is that initial gracious act of God whereby the Holy Spirit regenerates the life of a sinner, enabling him to turn to God in repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus and seek the things of God. It is that initial gift from God that enables a person to then receive all of God's other precious gifts. And this wonderful act of God is spoken of several places uh, in the Scriptures. The Apostle Peter opens his first epistle in verse 3 and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Apostle Paul says this to his fellow co-worker Titus, chapter 3. He says, God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. All those who truly confess and abide in Christ have been born again. In fact, it's quite a redundant statement to refer to someone as a born-again Christian because only Christians are born again. You can't have a born-again non-Christian. If you are born again, you are a Christian. If you are a Christian, you are born again. And as the scriptures just read highlight, uh, a person can only be born again by the miraculous work of God. It's got nothing to do with our own works of righteousness. It is God's mercy and grace. However, our works are the fruit, aren't they? The evidence that one has indeed been born again. We find reference and explanation to all of these things in the incredible conversation Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus. This encounter is going to be the focus of our time this morning. So if you haven't already, I encourage you to open your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 3 and we will discover the wonder of the new birth. And I pray that even if you, you're familiar with this passage, as I'm sure many of us are, that God would again enlighten us through the power of his word today. So reading from the ESV and uh, the first eight verses of John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. (coughs) As we look through this passage now, I want us to see three things that will help us understand the wonder of God's regenerating work. If you've got your newsletters, they are on the back. We're going to look at the condition of new birth, the character of new birth, and the confirmation of new birth. So firstly, the condition of new birth. See, people cannot see or enter the kingdom of God through their own means. It's not possible. And so the only way this can happen is for God to regenerate their heart through new birth. New birth is the condition for seeing God. Our passage opens, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. This actually links us back to uh, the end of John chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles there, from verse 23 we read this, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, that's Jesus, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So here we have John, the Gospel writer, explaining to us Jesus' omniscience that he knows what is in the heart of a man. And now there was a man named Nicodemus, a man who we know that Jesus knew the heart of. And as you continue through the following chapters of John's Gospel, you see a series of conversations where Jesus knows the heart of the person he's talking to. And there are different responses along the way. Now this man that Jesus is speaking to was a man of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, as we know, were one of the main Jewish sects and it means separated ones. They held to the law. And following the law, they thought led to salvation. But many encounters that they had with Jesus showed that they didn't actually fulfill the law to its completion, or they uh, they misunderstood or misapplied the law, sometimes deliberately. Jesus called them out on their hypocrisy many a time. So this was a man of the Pharisees, but he was also a ruler of the Jews. Uh, He was part of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council. So this was not just any man. He was a man of the Pharisees. He was a, a man in the Jewish ruling council of the day. But he was also a prominent teacher. In fact, Jesus refers to him in verse 10 as the teacher, not just a teacher among many, but the teacher. So here we see an impressive list of credentials. But John sets these details out for us, not merely to know who Nicodemus is, but to understand that here is a man thought to be in an impressive position before the people, 
and before God. And yet we remember that Jesus is the one who truly knows what is in this man's heart. So verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night. Possibly for an unhindered discussion. Jesus in Jerusalem at the time and uh, performing many signs, people crowding around him and here Nicodemus is just wanting a, a private conversation to discuss with him. Further to that, uh, Later in John's Gospel, in chapter 9, we, we read of, of uh, how hard it was to associate yourself with Jesus. Uh, the Pharisees uh, threatened to kick people out of the synagogue for associating with him. And so moreover, we see in John's Gospel that any time darkness or night is mentioned, it's referring to a spiritual darkness. Not merely the fact that the sun's gone down, but... There's a darkness inside the person. John chapter 13, verse 30, we read after the Lord's Supper, Judas went out and it was night. We know it was nighttime, but there was something else going on here. And so it is for Nicodemus, it was night, but the night was darker than Nicodemus himself actually realised so Nicodemus came to him and he said, Rabbi, using a, a respectful title, Nicodemus is making a, a genuine inquiry and he's not trying to trap him. There's no one else around to see him fall into the trap, so it's a bit pointless. It's a genuine inquiry. He's, he is addressing him as teacher, but he's addressing him as a peer, a fellow teacher. And so there's sincerity here, but there's not submission to who Jesus truly is. The Word made flesh. What does he say? He says, We know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And so Nicodemus, he is a very smart and clever guy, he recognises a condition. He recognises that Jesus could not do what he did unless God was with him. There is something special about this person, Nicodemus knows. And he, he understands, or at least he thinks he understands something about who Jesus is. So the question implied by Nicodemus is, who are you then really, Jesus? But Nicodemus at this stage is not truly seeking. He's, he's hiding behind his credentials. He has not understood what the signs point to. Indeed, that's the whole purpose that John is writing his gospel. He, he tells us the purpose of his gospel in John chapter 20, verse 31. Uh, John says, but these signs, referring to everything that's written in the gospel, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you may have life in His name. Nicodemus can see the signs, but not what the signs point to. Mere intellectualism will not overcome our sinful nature so that we can see and know God. We need something more. 
And so Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, amen, amen, let it be, let it be. This is an emphatic statement of truth. Nicodemus, listen up, here it is. And Jesus, in saying this, he cuts to the heart of the issue. Right? He doesn't sit there and dwell on Nicodemus' platitudes. Oh, you think I'm a, a good teacher? Come from God, thank you. No, he cuts through that. And he begins to school the teacher. And Jesus sets up his own conditional statement. Jesus has a way of turning the phrases that people bring to him, turning it on their head and cutting to the heart. Jesus says to him, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you think you can see the things of God, but let me tell you something. Unless God changes your sinful heart and regenerates your mind, you will never see or experience God as saviour. When Jesus says one must be born again, it's a statement of fact. Uh, If you're an English teacher, uh, in grammatical terms, it's in the indicative, not in the imperative. It's a statement of fact. The need for rebirth is a fact. It's not a command because we can't be commanded to do something that we cannot do. Only God can do this work for us. To be born again means to be regenerated. It literally uh, means born from above. And it signifies a divine renewal, something that has to happen outside of ourselves. And it's not merely an upgrade, but it's a complete renovation, a regeneration, a starting over. And why is this necessary, we might ask ourselves? Why such dramatic change needed in the heart of a sinner? As Jesus points out in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, only the pure in heart will see God. The problem is, we're not pure in heart. We are, in fact, totally depraved. Our whole constitution has been affected by sin. John Calvin said this, by the word born again he means not the amendment of a part, but the renewal of the whole nature. Hence it follows that there is nothing in us that is not defective. Have you ever left spaghetti bolognese sauce cooking on the stove and got distracted and come back and you realise that it's burnt on the bottom and that flavour while it looks okay on the top, that flavour has seeped through the whole thing and there's not one little teaspoon that you can taste that's not defective. Sin has affected our whole constitution. We don't need merely a leg up to reach our potential. We need a complete renovation. And we are not pure, but God is. And this again makes it even worse because God is holy and righteous And unless our sin is dealt with, then we cannot have a relationship with him. We remain his enemies and under his wrath. And it gets even worse from here. Because there is nothing that we can do or wish to do about it. 
We still have the freedom to make choices. Absolutely we do. But our choices are, are guided by our desires, are guided by our nature. And because our nature is sinful, we will never desire the things of God unless God sovereignly renews our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is regeneration. This is the new birth. And so only when God touches our sinful hearts and uh, makes things new can we freely choose the things of God. Only then can we see the kingdom of God to come under his reign and his rule and to have the promise of eternal life in his physical kingdom to come at Christ's return. Furthermore, the sovereignty of God is seen in verse 8 of John chapter 3 when, when Jesus compares the wind blowing where it wishes to those born of the Spirit. We don't control the wind. And neither do we control God's working in people's lives. That is his problem. That's his work. John has already pointed this out in chapter 1, in that great prologue at the beginning when he speaks about the true light coming into this world. In John chapter 1, he says in verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Children who were born of God. God's decision. Just as we have no control over the fact that we were physically born, that was our parents' decision, so we have no control over whether God will give us spiritual birth. Um, Crystal and I mentioned we have a beautiful six-week-old son, and I don't remember him sitting at the table last year having a discussion with Crystal and I as to whether we should have a second child. He was not involved in that discussion. Just the same, we don't sit in the heavenly council and offer our opinion to God as to whether we should be born again. Now, one of the reasons that the sovereignty of God and salvation and election is such a struggle is that <coughs> we have been affected by our culture and that we have developed a higher view of man than what the Bible actually teaches. And we've developed a lower view of God than what the Bible actually teaches. We are far more sinful than we realise, and God is far more holy than we realise. Jesus' words to Nicodemus cut through any notion that his works or his standing um, have any impact upon his own salvation. He needed to realise that salvation was by grace alone. And it's a message that we too must heed. For unless one is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. So that's the condition. Now we see the character of the new birth. A person cannot enter the kingdom of God by their own means because they are sinful. We are sinful. And we need spiritual cleansing and renewal that only God can bring. 
verse 4, Nicodemus has these questions about how can a man be born when he is old. And on the surface, it really seems like Nicodemus has completely misunderstood Jesus, confusing what's spiritual and physical. But he's no fool. He is a ruler of the Jews. He is the teacher of Israel. This is Professor, Doctor, Reverend. He hasn't completely missed the point. He's responding to Jesus' direct critique upon all that he holds dear. Jesus said, Nicodemus, all your works will not save you. This can only happen by God. Nicodemus responds, how can I start over? How can I be born again? What about all of this stuff that I've worked for? And so Jesus expands upon what he has already stated. Again, truly, truly, listen up, Nicodemus. You need to be born of water and the Spirit. How are, we under- how are we to understand water and the Spirit? Well, there's two ways that will help us, and I'll, we'll go through these quickly. Firstly, if we look at the text grammatically, we can see the parallels. In verse 3, we read born again. Verse 5, born of water and the Spirit. Verse 6, born of the Spirit. Verse 8, born of the Spirit. You can line them up. And so there is only one birth in view here, which, when you understand that, removes many of the different interpretations that come up for this text. And so water and the spirit must be elaborations on the one thing. So that's grammatically. Theologically, since Jesus' rebuke of Nicodemus is for not understanding, we should think that Nicodemus should understand what he's talking about. So the most obvious place is to look to the Old Testament that Nicodemus would know backwards. And when we do, we see in Ezekiel chapter 36, both of these concepts coming together very clearly. Ezekiel chapter 6, verses 25 to 27, let me read these. I will sprinkle clean water on you, says God. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So we see that water brings cleansing from impurity. And the Spirit then enables obedience. And if we put those together, new birth enables one to stand in God's holy presence and to follow his ways. Therefore we understand very clearly now why the new birth from above is a condition for seeing God's kingdom if it enables one to stand in God's holy presence and follow his ways, then what happened before the new birth? It follows that we were unable to stand in God's holy presence and unable to follow his ways. And this, of course, is exemplified uh, in Romans 3, where the Apostle Paul doesn't hold back. 
quoting from the Old Testament several verses where he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one does good. Not even one. No exceptions. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And so this is the character of the new birth. This is its nature and how it works. But of course, how could it be otherwise? Jesus says in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You know the saying, like produces life, isn't it? A human can only create a human child. The Holy Spirit can only create a holy child of God. Indeed, only the Holy Spirit can create a spiritual life. That a person has been given new birth from above is also clearly evidenced in their lives. And this leads to our last point, the confirmation of new birth. You see, a person who has been born again will show definite effects of this in the way they think and in the way they act. Verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Why not? Why should Nicodemus not marvel at this thing? Well, two reasons. Number one, Jesus is not speaking something new, completely out of left field here. He's drawn Nicodemus back to the Old Testament and there are other passages that reflect the same thing as well. Nicodemus should have been familiar with the way God works. But secondly, why should he not marvel? Well, Jesus is not speaking something unintelligible. There are other things, many other things that we cannot fully understand and yet we know that they exist because we see the effects. For example, the wind. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We can't control the wind. We can't ultimately understand the wind. Uh, we think we do in this modern age, but in trying to pack for this weekend as to what clothes we should wear, looking every day, the weather changed. So we don't ultimately understand the wind and the weather, but we can certainly see its effects. The same is true of those who have been born of the Holy Spirit. How they've been reborn is the unfathomable work of a sovereign God. But their lives will outwardly exhibit the inward change that has been made. We know that something has happened. And the first piece of evidence being repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For as we just celebrated last weekend at Easter, it was through his death and resurrection that he paid the penalty for the sins of his people. And if we had more time, we could go on today to talk about the cause of new birth. Because that's exactly what Jesus explains. 
with these verses about the atonement and the cross in verses 14 and 15. Now, whereas you must be born again is a statement of fact, the Bible constantly says you must believe in the Lord Jesus. This is the command. This is what we are called to respond to ourselves. This is what we are to call others to respond to as well. Believe in the Lord Jesus in his death and his resurrection and his ascension. Confess Jesus as Lord and you will be saved. Now a perfect illustration of uh, the work of God in this is in Acts 16, verse 14, where it speaks of, of Lydia, where it says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. Regeneration by the Spirit affected her that she could then repent and confess faith in Jesus Christ. So regeneration leads to conversion. And of course conversion then leads to more fruit, doesn't it? In his first epistle, the Apostle John lists numerous tests that prove whether a person has been born again. We just read from 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, where the Apostle writes, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And that's just one of many that John lists in his epistle. Remember the confronting words of the Lord Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is an inward, instantaneous action in the life of a sinner. But, like the wind that moves the leaves and the trees, the effect of new birth will be seen. It can't help but be seen in the sinner's new life. The conversation with Jesus left Nicodemus dumbfounded. Jesus had knocked down all of his strongholds. Jesus had left him with a clear message of the need for God's grace. We're not entirely sure how Nicodemus responded to this. There are clues throughout the rest of the Gospel that give the impression that he moved closer and closer to Jesus. But this ambiguity sets up a tension for us reading it. It leaves us uh, without a clear answer about Nicodemus, but in doing so, it reflects the question back upon ourselves. How will we respond? How will you respond? We must be born again, and this can only happen by the grace and the mercy of God. So will you fall on your knees and cry out to God that he be merciful? And will you ask God to be gracious and grant you the wonder of the new world and live for him all the days? Dear Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, your sovereignty, that you are in control of all things. 
Father, we thank you that uh, for this incredible truth, because it means that there is hope for sinners like us. Because in our sinful state, we will never choose you, and we are so thankful that by your grace, you have worked for us. Help us to trust in your mercy and to let go of the things that that we hold on to, the crutches in our lives that we use as a way of defining us as your people. But help us to be people who are known as ones who trust in the mercy and grace of God. And may our lives exhibit this wonderful, gracious work in the way that we live our lives each and every day. May we truly live for the glory of God and of your incredible Son, the Lord Jesus.